Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Quill today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Thank you, Dr. Quill, for agreeing to come talk with me today. Could you start by telling me how you got to palliative care as a specialty? You know, I, I was not sure. I, I, I was interested in hospice care. I thought about palliative care. I didn't really know about palliative care before I went to medical school. I didn't really know much about medical school when I went to medical school. So, <laughs> you know, I just kind of went because it seemed like a good thing to do. One of my early mentors was a was a hospice doctor. He taught us about, you know, what hospice was and what it was involved with. And, and I actually uh, rounded with him seeing patients on ho- on hospice. And, and that actually kept me, I would say, somewhat sane during medical school, because back in those days, the first couple of years of medical school was pretty straight on science. So that was a little bit of an oasis interviewing people with him. And, and he was really an expert at hearing people's stories. That had a tremendous appeal to me. And of course, the people on hospice are, you know, there aren't that many, particularly in those days, not that many people hearing their stories. So when somebody came in and interested in their story, they were, many were more than willing to talk. So I learned about people's stories, how they got to hospice and all that stuff. And, and that had a lot of appeal. To so I think that, that sort of put me in the direction of, of hospice. And then palliative care just sort of, it, it came on as a, as a second wave of that because palliative care was just evolving as a field. And of course, it made complete sense to say, well, geez, we don't just have to pay attention to pain symptoms when somebody's dying. And you don't have to certainly don't have to pay attention to stories just when somebody's dying because their their story is a part of the medical world. And actually in Rochester, that was a that was a unique aspect of Rochester. It was one of the appealing parts of going there is that the, the medical interview and relationship building was was a big thing in their curriculum. And, and and at that time, it's much more common now, but at the time it was fairly unique. And so that all f- sort of held together for me. I'm wondering, where did you develop or pick up that love of stories? You know, I, I don't know, probably in college a little bit. You know, most of what I did up until medical school was pretty random. But I went to college <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I, I didn't have a, you know, I didn't, some people have a clear vision. I'm going to go do this. I didn't have that. So, but I, I went to uh, undergraduate school at, at Amherst. They were in a very exploratory mode. You could go and design things you wanted to do and design your own curriculum and a lot of independent study. There were courses as well, but a lot of independent study. And of course, all that had tremendous appeal to me. The idea of sitting in a classroom and having people lecture at you had zero appeal to me. <laughs> I mean, there are some brilliant lectures and, and a lot of it is not so appealing. So a little bit more independent study where you kind of figure out a subject and you write something about it that had a lot of appeal and went to the in-depth exploration of subject, which can appeal to me. And what were some of the subjects that you took a deep dive to in college? You know, philosophy, you know, <laughs> I didn't know anything about philosophy, but it had an appeal. That was certainly 
one history a little bit you know i was not a, i was not a history major at all writing had some appeal so again it was it was more or less of a hodgepodge of things i didn't have an idea that i would come out ready to do a job you know for better or worse and again it, it could have been a bad thing it could end up being completely lost but it turned out that it wasn't a bad thing and once i decided may, well maybe medical school because of this exposure that i had that then that gave some structure to what, because there are there are requirements to what you have to do to go to medical school. So, and I did have an interest in science as well as humanities. So that that was not taking science courses was not a hardship for me. And so that mix of that and the humanities was what I ended up doing. And then Rochester as a place to go, I met some people who were from Rochester, and, and they had the biopsychosocial model and the biopsychosocial spiritual model. And that certainly had an appeal to me. I thought I would go into psychiatry is actually what I thought I was going to do. Just because, you know, this mentor was a psychiatrist and psychosocial aspects of medicine were quite interesting to me. And biology got its hooks in me too. So there you go. <laughs> what about the biology that made you turn in a different direction in psychiatry? Well, there, first of all, there was biopsychology, psychiatry. So that was what I thought I would do. So as, as biology started getting its hooks in, you know, it was the brain chemistry. In addition to the other dimensions, you couldn't really ignore brain chemistry and some people who were like completely whacked, not from any particularly traumatic experience, but from biology probably. And it's had an appeal just to take this broader approach. And with the biopsychosocial spiritual model, there were so many dimensions also at which you can intervene and maybe make a difference. So the real challenge would be is, is still, but in my mind was, how do you pick and choose which dimensions for a particular patient? So it may not be the same dimensions for every patient, but so for some, it's a big biology factor. For some, it's a big traumatic event factor. For some, it's a spiritual factor, you know? And, and so the idea would be to explore all those dimensions and to see where the, and to some degree, the what where the interest was would be where the patient was, but it also obviously had, since I was the explorer in person, what captured my imagination about their story was one of the places we would always go. I think that dovetails nicely into my next question, your sense that there is some kind of general model, but then with each person, there's all certain nuances to each thing. And so what has being present to death and to chronic illness throughout your career taught you about being human? I think when people are super sick and approaching death, it sort of puts them up against what's important in their lives. You know, not everybody wants to go there, but it kind of puts you there, even if you choose not to go there. So that was one of the appeals of working in that area is that it was very compelling to see where that took them. And because it, it took them to something that was important in their life. You could, as an explorer with them, help them explore that. And, and that might lead to avenues to heal, help, make better, or at, at a minimum, even if you couldn't do any of those things, make them less alone with their experience, which is huge, right? Particularly for people who are very off on their, on their own. Uh, so again, the, all those things had a, had a lot of appeal. And again, this, this guy, Art Schmally, and some others at, the, at Rochester exposed me to that to a degree. And then I, I sort of kept going with it. Do you have a particular story of maybe a time when 
being with a patient gave you some insight, whether directly or indirectly, about, about what it means to really live life. Palliative care puts people up against what's what's important and probably took me to the whole assisted dying zone as well. Because if you start to go with people as to what's important to them and where their, their illness is taking them, it often gets you into conversations about death and how to either fight death, which many people like to do, and want to do even and again if you can use medicine technology and it has something to offer then it's great but for others it's quite futile to fight death because we don't have good answers but then also do you go toward acceptance of the frailty of life or the finality of life so just exploring those dimensions those and those were always uh, very interesting conversations and and rich and good for the patients and interesting to me and so i've captured a lot of those things in stories over the years of patients so using narratives to capture that has been productive for me and it was productive for the patient going through it too so when you say capturing them in narratives, are you talking about working out a narrative with a patient or are you kind of after the fact using narrative to make sense of your own experience? Mostly it was me using the narrative to make sense of the experience. And I've often felt that if there was something in that narrative that moved me, chances are it would move other people you know, because I'm not that unique, you know, what interests me is likely to be of interest. And and because, and of course these, and also we would use them for, for groups of trainees. So we would talk about some of the most, uh, challenging, interesting, whatever it is, meaningful, troubling patient that we've seen in, in the last period of time. We would tell a story about that and, and other people would tell it was similar from their experience with their patient. And that whole relating around a patient's story, first of all, it humanizes medicine, it humanizes us, gives us slightly different insights from everybody's perspective and, and seems like a productive way to evolve and learn and explore. Could you give an example of a narrative that you would use in one of those either self-reflective or teaching moments? You know, I, I, I became involved in the assisted dying movement. That didn't come out of the blue, came out of working with people. And the, the probably the most well-known narrative was about this patient named Diane who had acute leukemia and became my patient during this process and sort of exploring how far she was willing to go to fight her acute leukemia and sort of our conversation around that. And also how far I was willing to go to let her take charge of her own death. So that dynamic going forth was certainly was compelling at the time. And then it took me to directly assisting her to die at the end of her life, you know, which was not legal. And how far was I willing to go to help a patient who I cared about a lot. And then when I keep that all in secret or would I talk about it or write about it or whatever, all those kinds of things opened up from that experience. I wrote about it for myself first, just to sort of make sense out of it. And I've often felt that if I'm struggling with things, likely other people are struggling with them too. And so my narratives can help me struggle, but also might help others to struggle. So on a whim in a certain way, I sent it into the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, to say if they would had any interest in it. And it turns out that the editor of the New England Journal had a special understanding of this particular subject because she had helped her father to die uh, under 
fairly similar circumstance, who was also an editor of the journal before her. We started having a conversation about whether I should publish this with them. And did I really know what I was getting into, you know, because it was stretching the law and as well as ethics and other things which I naively thought that I did, but in a certain way I did. I then I published it and ended up, and it ended up becoming both a legal and a public exploration of this whole topic. What was it exactly that you were struggling with in that case? These are the struggles that I had. She may have had other different ones. I struggled with two parts of it, uh, but one was that she decided not to try aggressive treatment, which could have cured her probably wasn't going to because she had a really bad disease, but it could have. You know, you sometimes you see people who are super sick going into things and they decide not to have any treatment because they're just tired of the whole thing because they were already sick before this sickness. But that was not the case with her. And she didn't want to get into it because putting herself in the hands of doctors was scary, terrifying to her. And putting herself in the hands of the hospital was terrifying for a variety of reasons, which we explored. And then she also wanted to skip the last phase of the dying process. She was very super independent person and she didn't want to be physically dependent on others. And, and she had some good reasons for not wanting to do that. And so I needed to figure out whether I could assist her uh, in this and, and what that meant, because I didn't have a clue. So I talked privately with people that I knew who worked in, the, in this zone learned that actually a fair number of them had had cases not dissimilar to this at one point in their career, you know, and that there was a whole underground discussion around what, what ways you could assist in dying. And so, again, I was out on a limb, but it, it was a limb that other people had been out on and they were willing to talk with me about my being out there. And so that made me feel more comfortable with what I was doing. And so you said that she was terrified of putting herself in the hands of doctors. How did you manage to build a relationship with her so that you could work with her? Just conversation. I mean, you know, just exploring, you know, the, the uh, Rochester is known for this biopsychosocial model. And what that teaches you is that you hear the person's story first in an open-ended way. So not, not judgmentally, but just hearing it. And so if you, if you learn how to do this, you know, people will tell you their story. Once I had heard her story about this, then I think in that process, the fact that I wasn't judging her and the things she was asking about or doing probably made her more willing to tell me more about it and, and uh, see where it took her. It seems simple. And yet I also imagine it requires a certain level of skill to also do that. Well, there's an interviewing skill. Actually, uh, psychiatrists are pretty good at this skill, right? It's open-ended interviewing. That part is of, of getting that, but then deciding how far you're willing to go with that as, as you get into that. That's a whole nother level of exploration. And again, that has to do with knowing yourself and talking to other people, getting some reality check on what you're getting into. What was that reality check like when you found yourself at this point and starting to head out onto this limb, so to say? There were probably a number of layers to it. You know, one is I have certain anti-authority uh, streaks in me, you know, that, that run pretty That's deep <laughs> and high respect for individuality and patient autonomy and those kinds of things. A commitment to going with people no matter where their thing takes them, as long as I can feel like I'm okay going there. Um, those strains were all present. There was the part about what would, could I do to help her and how far would I go to do that. And then there was a separate stream about 
writing about it and publishing it, you know, which is, which, uh, is another, which is another, it's going public with it. Why do that? And, you know, cause it's much safer to keep it secret. And, and a fair number of people do things like that that are secret, so. So you said making sure that you're okay with going with the patient, you know, to whatever direction they're heading. What is your sense for when things would be not okay for you? Well, you know, you have to be able to get up in the morning, right? You have to be able to live with yourself. You have to have to feel like what you're doing is ultimately good, you know, and it's not harmful. Uh, it's not, you're not doing it for some egotistical reason. And also that, that the, if there is risk legal, how much risk is there? Are you willing to take that risk? Are you willing to go to jail for it? Are you willing to lose your career for it? So, and, and is, are those risks real? Are they high enough or maybe they're not, not likely to happen? And so as I talked to people who have been involved in these kinds of things, they, I became relatively reassured that it None of the really, really serious risks would likely come to pass. Although that was probably more, more, I think in the clinical side, I think it was, it was quite safe what I did in a certain way. You've made allusions to, or just directly stated sometimes that this area in which you found yourself working can be a contentious one, or at least one where there are differing opinions, both morally, legally on this topic. So how do you navigate working with other professionals who may have different views than you have on these topics? Well, I mean, most of the time you don't get into it with them. I mean, if some degree you you probably see more of your of people who are like-minded in terms of values that you are than than those who are really opposite. Although, point of fact, many of my I suppose I'm trying to think if I have really really good friends who are are opposite-minded on this particular subject. I don't know whether I do or not, but I have acquaintances certainly that are not of the same mind of this. And but most of the people who I talk to about these kinds of things who are friends are pretty much like-minded about it. So, you know, and you explore these things. I mean, you talk about the cases that you're taking care of and what the issues are. And, and, and in point of fact, in palliative care, we do a lot of this stuff. So there's a, there's a whole tradition of talking about your tough cases. Uh, so in, in a hospice, same thing, because there are tough cases. I mean, you know, people are dying or really super sick and doesn't all even with really skilled care it doesn't always go smoothly and those the edges of that are really worth exploring because everybody's going to confront them sooner or later so it's interesting to explore what the edges are. i mean if everything was the same and everything went smoothly all the time it'd be fine but there is a whole another part of trying to explore the edges that I've always been intrigued by. I really love this phrase that you've been using of calling yourself an explorer with the patient. The other version of the question I just asked you is how do you work with patients who might have differing perspectives than you do on how they wish to die or what is the quote unquote right way to die? It's the patient's death. It's not my death, right? So the skill is to explore their experience and some of that is their values and personality. Some of it is their medical situation. So those are different, they're quite different zones, but you, what you're trying to do is bring them together. And then what are the options for them that are realistic? So you're really trying to adapt medicine to fit into that package to work as best it can for that particular patient and family. And it's more patient than family, but it's patient and family. Again, as you start to get in the edges of this, it's also it may also stretch my boundaries. Some people may want to 
get much more aggressive treatment that is extremely unlikely to work and it's going to make them sick as snoot in the process of dying and and you know and I will tell them how I see those things and you know it's their their life and experience but are there some that are just too extreme for me to participate and the answer is yes uh, you know, there just some some people. It's just the the gap is too big, uh, and so those you you generally help them find somebody else who can maybe close that gap, or they choose to go find somebody else, or you choose to send them to somebody else. Yeah, but most of the time you're fi- you're able to find common ground. I mean, I have a pretty, I'm I'm pretty fine with aggressive battles against disease as long as people really know what the odds are and what they're getting into. Um, and I'm pretty fine with not getting into those battles and saying this is too much more than you want to get into. And so where do we go then? So I know we've been talking about some particularly challenging moments or struggles that you've experienced. I guess my next question would be, can you tell me about a particular you know, experience that you had that you found was fulfilling for you? Oh, I'm, I mean, I have thousands of experiences like that. <laughs> I don't know if thousands is probably too extreme, but you know, the, the work is so rich of palliative care. And, and I worked in primary care and palliative care to start out with, and I love both, but primary care, it's way less intense, you know, because people aren't as sick and some of the decisions are, they're subtle and they're, do I use this antihypertensive or that one? And how much do we have to explore both of those? And does it make a difference? And Whereas in palliative care and sicker end of the spectrum patients, the, the, the stakes seem to me much higher. Now, again, if I'm the primary care patient, the stakes are pretty high because it's me, right? So I don't know. Both parts of that were good, but the palliative care, it's so much more intense than the primary care part, at least for me, that it ended up having much more of an appeal. Now, again, the other, the other things are, I'm not diminishing them. I'm just saying that uh, this, for me, they, they were more compelling, I suppose. In the last little block of time we had here, I want to switch perspectives a little bit. And I was curious, what is your perspective on your own death and how you would like to prepare for it, given all of the experience you've had helping other people navigate that? Well, first of all, you don't really know until you get, from my perspective, I, I think it's doubtful that I will want to go through some gigantic, improbable medical adventure with a small chance that it might, that I might come out the other side. Now, again, I talk big now saying I wouldn't want to do it, but who knows, you might want to do it when you, because people change their mind. And, and I certainly have met people as patients who I would never guess they would be going for the third round of experimental chemotherapy. And they would never have guessed it either, but there they are trying because life is precious, you know, and, and they don't want to let it go. And, and vice versa. I've seen people who I was sure they would want to give it the medical full court press for a long time who said no way once they either got into it or even before they got into it so I think it's hard to predict so it's hard to predict what I would do you know I, I think I'm probably still in you know I'm I'm getting old but uh, I'm not that old you know so I'm probably be still willing to try some things you know as if it came down to it but I'd, I'd really have to think it through very very carefully because you know some of the stuff some of the things we long shot things or the aggressive things we put people through. Oh my God, it's it's very intense. So you have to really want to give it your give it your all to with a relatively small chance of really meaningful response to do it. And I'm not sure how far I'd be willing to go in that department. How about yourself? Where would you I, be in that zone? I don't feel the desire to kind of try and like suck every 
waking joy out of life. Again, I mean, maybe you're right. And if I became deathly ill tomorrow, I would be singing a different tune. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, I would just want to be somewhat comfortable, have some time to like patch up some relationships that probably aren't in the best of shape. And also some time though, to really celebrate the people who have been with me through thick and thin and who really helped and supported me in times when I desperately needed it. Because I think in my dying, I would like that to be a gift still, as hard as it would be for me and for those close to me. I would still want it to be a gift, something that still had a chance to give life in some way. The question I was going to ask you was, as you said, you know, you don't really know until you get there. How do you understand or reconcile when people kind of say all along, well, I'm going to do this. And then when the moment comes, there's this change, you know, do you, it seems like one could chalk it up to, oh, well, you know, you're just losing your commitment to whatever you believe in, although that's like a very judgmental way of saying things or other people might interpret that as, oh, no, you know, only once you're in the situation with all of the kind of experiences, only then can you really make that decision. So how do you reconcile those two viewpoints? Well, I think the way I approach that would be if somebody's making a decision that's, we let's say we've been in conversation about this, whatever the topic is, whatever the decision is, and they make a decision that's consistent with the way we've been talking all the way through, you know, I might double check if it's a, if it's a high risk decision to, to make sure they're sure, but I'm probably just going to keep going with that. On the other hand, let's say they, they were going in this direction, it seemed like that, and then they're, they're making a very surprising decision in either direction, either, you know, go at it because like, I just feel like I have to, or I'm calling it quits because this, it's not, I just don't want to do it. I think that those are where, where it's a real change. I think you're going to, I'm be, going to be inclined to spend some more time thinking it through, taking some time with it, making sure you're sure. And of course, if people want to change, it's all okay. It's not my life and death, but just to make make sure people are sure when they're doing things that seem inconsistent with where they've been. I suppose around any big high stakes decision, spending a little extra time, making sure that they're sure, exploring their thinking, I think is really worth doing. You know, for minor things, I don't think it's all that necessary because they really do have consequences. They're likely to be part of the, be a big defining factor for the next phase of a person's life. And if it's potentially the last phase, you want to make sure that's a defining factor that be what they really feel like they need to do or want to do. I guess I still wonder, how does one determine as the external source, whether or not this other person's reasoning is, I don't know, like deemed sufficient to like alter their course or mm -hmm. what is deemed insufficient to altering their course? I don't know that there are any easy rules. If there's something about it that doesn't sit right, and again, sitting right does not have to do with my values. It really has to do with their values and the decision much more than mine. Maybe mine, maybe you can't, it's inevitable that mine will have some role in there, but it's really 90%, should be 90% theirs. But if it's a surprising turn, then I'm going to figure out, I'm going to ask them, who's in their family and who do they trust? Can we bring them into the conversation just to make sure that they're all, because they're going to have to make sense out of this too. And so to get their permission to maybe meet with their whoever, spouse, best friend, parent, 
Again, they have to get permission so you don't go doing this without that. But particularly for the these kind of things that just don't quite add up. I think the stakes are high enough to warrant doing that. Uh, for some reason, I hadn't really thought of how the other members of this person's family or their other relationships would have to also cope and deal with and somehow hopefully come to acceptance of what their decision is. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know... You probably come from an ideal family. You know, my family's a little more complex, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they, so it, there, it's complex getting in family involved. But I think when you're getting into a surprising decision that doesn't quite add up, at least exploring what do you think about involving so-and-so uh, in this because uh, they're going to have to make sense out of this. And so that exploration, it'll have them and you take a slight, slightly different lens and put that on the decision. And sometimes that opens the door. Sometimes it doesn't. Another more personal question is, what are your beliefs around what happens after death? My beliefs, I think, probably are that when you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of done and over. Done and over. I'm not really a big, strong believer in an, in an afterlife that has anything that we can if there is such a thing, it's going to be something so unimaginable to us that uh, having said that, I do think the afterlife that for me is important is my kids, the people that I've had contact with, and not, not that they need to remember me in any way, but how is anything that I'm doing now having an impact on them? Anything about the decisions that I make going you know, to work in that direction. So if there is an afterlife, I think it's living on through the people you've met and the, and the family. If it's biology, it's going to be the family members you connected with biologically and if not, or psychosocially, your extended family and broader sense. So I'm not, I'm not a particularly religious person. I'm probably a particularly non-religious person. I'm a Unitarian, if I'm anything, you know, which sort of says that I'm not a very religious person. Unitarians believe in uh, the greater good and the broader impact and implications of what you do and the people you contact and all that stuff. And that, that I do believe strongly in. What would you like your legacy to be or that afterlife that you pass on to those in your life? Oh, I think, uh, you know, just being a caring person, being a person who tries to make a difference in life in one way or another, and in any ways that you can, having an impact on people, on things, you know, good things in life. So, so it'd be both the core family thing, making sure those people that, that, I've, that have influenced them in some meaningful way, and then influencing other people in meaningful ways too. I think those things are all important to me in terms of legacy or impact. So looking back on your life, what parts are you proud of? And then do you have any regrets? I don't know that I have any major regrets. I'm trying to think if I have any regrets that are major. I don't really know. I mean, you know, my life has not been at all perfect, but so there have been things in life that have not gone well. And you know, mistakes that I've made, but I don't really have any regrets that I would say, oh, if I'd done this, it would have been all better, that kind of thing. And again, I, the same things I'm, I, I feel most good about are the work that I've done, the kids that I've raised, the people that I've had contact with. I think those are all the things that I feel particularly good about. And is there anything that you wish to experience or do before, before you die? I thought it would be traveling a lot at the moment. It's a little, it's a little more challenging to travel. So, but I'm, I, 
probably just going to be seeing what's trying to unfold now. Again, I think it will involve travel, uh, going to visit friends. We, I've traveled a fair amount in, in my life, and I and I enjoy doing that. But I don't I don't know what's trying to happen. I'm just going to go with what's trying to happen, trying to try to keep an open mind to that. I don't have any uh, major unfinished business that I that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's probably some, but uh, but I think it's not of I don't think it's of a major scale. So it's really making contact with family and friends and playing things out uh, and and seeing what's possible. Again, I'm hoping as if COVID is really fading to some degree that it'll involve some travel and. Yeah, when you say that, it reminds me of you saying how with your patients, you're exploring with them. And it sounds you take sounds like you're taking a similar attitude to your life of saying, you know, we're here to explore, you know, not accomplish X, Y, or Z, but, you know, see what happens. That's that's definitely where I am right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had different times where I've been like, had something out there I've been trying to accomplish and going, going after it, but I, I don't have that right now. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Although having a clear goal focuses the mind and spirit and energy. And so having a little bit more, more gray or open-ended, it's probably good for me, you know, to not be quite so focused on things, but it's something I'm learning to do. <laughs> but good for you in what way? When I get focused on something, I can get pretty heavily focused in, you know, on it. And, uh, you know, I, uh, that's one of the ways you accomplish things in life is get obsessed with something and then you do it and then you get obsessed with something else and do it. And so I, I don't have a big obsession right now that's driving me. So so it's it's opening up some other doors, like living a little bit more in the moment and a little less driven. Thanks to Dr. Quill for sharing his story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. I found him in his office, crawling around, looking at the baseboards with a magnifying glass. And without looking up to me, he said, The edges are really worth exploring because everybody's going to confront them sooner or later. If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.